This morning's scripture reading is in Luke chapter 10. If you're in your pew Bible, if you're in the Bible in the pews, it's on page 869. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of God. Good morning again, church, and happy new year. Good to see you all on this first Sunday of 2024. I can't think of a greater investment that you could make this year than to walk in your walk with Jesus, than to be here every week and gather consistently like this. I pray that you find uh, this to be that meaningful to you, that you make it a priority. We've been in a series here in January called The Disciplines of Grace. Disciplines of Grace. We started this last week. The word discipline can have a negative connotation, uh, but it doesn't have to. So what are we talking about? We're simply talking about the habits or the practices or the disciplines that help us grow as Christians. That's it. Habits, practices. So we do a series like this to start every year as a way of, of realigning our hearts and realigning our minds to our mission to remind ourselves, what is it that we are here for? What are we called to do as a church? Here's the mission of our church. I don't have it on my screen. Can you, is, there, is it on there? No, there it is. All right. The mission of our church is this. We exist to bring glory to God by making fully devoted followers of Christ who passionately love God and people. That is why our church exists. That is why we have covenanted together. That is why we gather together. That is why we live out our faith together. So the question is, how do we fulfill this mission? How do we do this? How do we have singular focus on this? How do we grow in this? How do we fulfill this? And here's the point. We, don't, we will never drift into godliness. We will never stumble our way or coast our way into fulfilling this mission. No one has ever coasted into holiness. It takes habits or rhythms to help us behold Jesus, encounter Jesus, and become transformed in his presence. And so that's why we're doing this series, The Disciplines of Grace, to help us to be more focused on this, to help us to become more like him. Last week we kicked off a series the series with prayer. That was the first discipline, the discipline of prayer. We had a prayer meeting every day of the week over the last week. Praise God for the ways he's going to answer our prayers this upcoming year. Today, the discipline of unhurried time with Jesus. I'm going to take a risk this morning and begin by sharing a confession with you. Some of you might be very shocked to hear this. Others, maybe not so much. 
I've had a struggle for most of my life. And to be honest, for many years, I, I was actually unaware of how serious a struggle this actually was. It's a struggle that has impacted my personal life. It's impacted my relationships. It's even impacted my work as a pastor. Now, before your mind starts racing as to what horrible sin I've been hiding, let me state the struggle right up front, okay? Here's my confession. I live a hurried life. Shocking, I know. Ever since I was a kid, I have always strived to do things fast. And to be honest, I kind of, I like doing things fast. For some reason, it's very satisfying to me. It feels like fast is equated with being productive, being successful, getting things done. And so now I do things fast. And you all know this. I drive fast. <laughs> uh, you don't have to laugh that much. I mean, right? And you all, you all are beneficiaries of all my stories of getting pulled over and going to court. But I have a clean record. I want you to know that. I, I drive fast. I walk fast. Anyone's ever walked with me? If you see me going, if I leave the, the, our, our pastor's meeting, I'm just going down the hall, I won't just walk, I'll run. Why? I don't know. I'd rather run. I talk fast. Many of you have told me that. I'm working on it. Hurry is so pervasive that I don't even realize that I do it. I'm always looking for the shortest checkout line at the grocery store. I'm counting lanes on the road to see how many cars are in each lane to get through the light the fastest. I leave web pages on my phone if it takes more than 0.2 seconds to load. Anybody else with me here? Okay, I'm not alone. And sadly, it's only been recently, in the last few years, that I've become deeply aware of how, her, how serious this what I'll call, what psychologists call hurry sickness, actually is. I say hurry sickness because that's what psychologists are describing as a pandemic of the modern world. Lots of research, I don't have time to get all into it. One of my heroes of the faith, though, Corey Ten Boom, you hear me quote her a lot, she once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Why? Why? Because sin and busyness have the same effect. They cut you off from connection to God. They cut you off from connection to other people. And it cuts you off from connection to your very own soul. I don't think I need to convince you that I'm not alone in this struggle. But here's some evidence to bear this out. A recent study found that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. A day. You think I'm lying, right? You, you can I'll, I'll come up to me afterwards. I'll show you the research. 2,617 times a day that the average person has 67 phone um, sessions a day, and that if they, if they break it down just to millennials, it's double. We're distracted, we're busy, and I'm sure you've seen documentaries or articles about how social media companies intentionally design their products to maximize distraction and addiction. Why? As one author and economist put it, a company can get your money if and only if they can get and keep your attention. 
Listen, in the Western world at least, the sad reality is we are an over-busy, hurried life. That is the new normal. Not just busy. Listen, busy is not wrong. Did, look at the Gospels. Did Jesus lead a busy life? Yeah, he had a lot going on. He kept a busy ministry schedule, but he was never in a hurry. He always had time to stop for someone, for someone to interrupt him. He always went the long way because he had someone else he had to meet. Over the years, I've been learning that hurry kills relationships because hurry is incompatible with love. You see, I didn't know this stuff. I, I just thought hurry was a problem. I was impatient. But, how, but hurry actually is incompatible with love. How do I know? Because 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, let me give you some descriptors of what love looks like. And what's the very first one? Love is patient. Ugh, how did I miss that? It's like right in my face. Love takes time. And hurry doesn't have the time. Hurry kills our joy. Hurry kills our gratitude. Hurry kills wisdom because wisdom has a pace and it's not fast. It makes you wait for it. In this incredible book I've been reading, John Mark Homer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Worry, he says this, quote, Hurry kills all that we hold dear. Spirituality, health, marriage, family, thoughtful work, creativity, generosity. And then he says, hurry is a sociopathic predator loose in our society. Years ago, I was still in college, so almost 20 years ago, I, I remember reading this book on the spiritual disciplines. I love it. Even today, I still quote this book. And there was this quote in there from Dallas Willard. And, and it kind of was this passing comment that the author who knew Dallas Willard, the author had asked Dallas Willard, who's a, one of the, a, wrote a book on the spiritual disciplines, this great man of faith, and he, and he asked him, what, what's the most important lesson you can help me to grow as a Christian? And Dallas Willard said, and this was the only thing he said, was, quote, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And that line has always struck with me, but I confess I never took it to heart. Until recently, because God is doing some important soul work in me, and I believe maybe in light of what he's doing in me, he wants to do some work in our church as well. Let me show you from God's word how Jesus lovingly invites us to lay aside all the things that would distract us from experiencing unhurried time in his presence. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Two lessons today. Two lessons. Number one, we are too busy even with good things. We pick up the story in the middle of Luke's gospel. You say, aren't we studying Luke's gospel? Yes, we're going to get to this passage many, many months from now, but, but it's so important, we're going to do it now. Jesus is going from village to village, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and he's teaching in the synagogues, and he's also teaching in homes. And, is, and he's gathering disciples. He's, he's inviting disciples to follow him. And they're learning from him. They're listening to him. And it says he arrives at this unnamed village where a woman named Martha opens up her home to Jesus and the disciples. We know from John 11 that this is the town of Bethany. It's just outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus had become dear friends with Martha and her sister Mary and their brother Lazarus. 
the same Lazarus who had died. He loved them very much, we know from John 11. And it seems clear that Martha is the older sister, the oldest. Maybe, she, And I believe this is her home. Notice it says in verse 38 that a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So here's Martha welcoming at least 13 people, right? Jesus and 12 disciples, but maybe even more welcoming this large group of people into her home. And this is a huge task to host this many people, to feed this many people, and especially when one of them is the Son of God. It's kind of a big deal. So naturally, as the host, Martha's busy getting everything in place. She's moving the furniture around to, to make sure everyone can be comfortable and seated together. She's getting the silverware ready and all the plates out, and, and she's making sure everyone feels comfortable and welcome, and everyone has drinks and, and hors d'oeuvres, and, and she's running back and forth to the kitchen for those who are cooking, and, and she's getting it all prepared and laying it all out. It's a very stressful day. Have you ever made bread for the one who is the bread of life? That can be stressful. A lot of pressure. Have you ever hosted anyone in your home? Yes. It's a lot of work, isn't it? We love hosting people in our home. We have people in our home all the time. You're welcome in our home. 2609 Kenway Drive. Just, drop, just maybe call us at a time. But you don't have to. A lot of you don't. And that's great. We love hosting. My wife is amazing at this. And I'm usually the one who's pushing for more hosting. And in the past, I wouldn't spend much time preparing at all. On the hospitality side, I wasn't really focused on that. All I wanted to do was talk to the people that we invited, mingle with them. But over the years, I've learned an important lesson. Hosting isn't just about relationship building. It's about making sure everything is in place. Do we have the food that we need for this many people? Is the house somewhat cleaned? What allergies do the people have who are coming? Are there kids? What are their ages? And the list goes on and on and on. So I can feel for Martha. Hosting is a lot of work and it's very important. But here's the thing. Martha wasn't just embracing the work as part of serving Jesus. Look what it says in verse 40. That she was distracted with much serving. And to make matters worse, her sister Mary, the younger sister, seems to have abandoned any responsibility in this. And she's just sitting at the feet of Jesus with the other disciples, listening to him teach, just hanging on every word. I don't know what happened. Maybe the sauce is boiling over. Maybe they burned the bread. Something happened, and it kind of like, it broke Martha. She, she couldn't take it any longer. And look, she marches right to Jesus, verse 40, and look what she says. And she went up to him, you can see her hand on her hip, and said, <laughs> Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now tell her to help me. Do you not care? Mary's not even doing what she's supposed to be doing as a woman in this home. Her, her question is framed in a way that assumes that the answer from Jesus will be, you're right, Martha. In fact, I do care. Mary, why are you even sitting at my feet? 
Why are you forsaking your responsibility? You should be ashamed of yourself, Mary. Get up and help your, help your sister. And Martha would have looked at her and said, See, I told you so. And she would have felt so justified in her anger and her frustration. But that's not how Jesus responds. Before we get to Jesus' actual response, we need to understand where Martha is coming from. Listen, in this culture, women were supposed to work hard at preparing the meal and make sure everyone was comfortable. And the men were allowed to sit at the feet of a teacher or a rabbi and learn from them. But what Jesus is doing and what he keeps doing in his ministry is he completely flips the script upside down. The first flip that Jesus makes is, as a rabbi, he accepts an invitation to a home owned by a woman. This was unheard of in Jesus' time. And right from the passage, right before this about the Good Samaritan, we learn from this chapter, Jesus keeps breaking barriers across cultures, social class, and now gender. Jesus is making it crystal clear from the beginning of his ministry, starting with the focus of Mary a woman, an unwed peasant woman, the mother of Jesus. Jesus and the Luke, the gospel writers, making it very clear that men and women could experience close fellowship with Jesus as his full disciples. And this is incredible. Not only that, the idea of a woman sitting at the feet of a rabbi learning from his teaching. This was culturally radical. In this time and place, women were deemed unworthy to do this, unworthy to sit at the feet of a religious leader. But Jesus tears down those barriers again. She's not only allowed to do this, she's affirmed as as being worthy to sit at the foot of the ultimate teacher. Please don't miss this. Jesus is redefining the place of women in his kingdom. As one commentator rightly put it, grace knows no boundaries in terms of gender. But what's Martha's real problem here? What's she really annoyed about, frustrated about, enough so that she would confront Jesus? Here's what it is. Martha is more concerned for Jesus to conform to her agenda than conforming to his agenda. She wants Jesus to conform to her agenda rather than conforming to his. Martha's more concerned with the physical meal that she's offering than the spiritual meal that he's offering. And that's the problem. She is so busy that she misses what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, even her. What Jesus has to serve us with his teaching is way more important than what we could ever offer him in serving him. Do you realize that? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been so caught up in the ways that you're serving the Lord that you've missed out on the more important ways that he wants to serve you in his word? Or are you so busy with the good things of life? Look, Martha was doing a good thing. She wasn't doing something sinful. She was doing good. She was preparing a meal. She was hosting. What are the good things in your life with your kids and their activities, with your marriage and all the things you're doing there, with your work and and it's a demanding job or your hobbies or whatever it is. I don't know what it is, but you know the good things in your life and you know if they've gotten you anxious and troubled because you feel the pressure of making sure everything gets done. And if you feel that, then that's what Martha was going through. And you can relate to Martha. 
Listen, this life is filled with endless opportunities to be busy and hurried. Is it not? Even if they're good things, they can still leave you feeling stressed, frustrated, and playing the comparison game. And if that's you, please hear me. That is not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of Jesus. Here's the question we all need to wrestle with, including myself. Have you become so busy with good things that you don't have time for the most important thing? Spending time with Jesus. Have you become so busy with the good things that you don't have time for the most important thing? We're too busy, even with good things. But lesson number two, spending time with Jesus is the one necessary thing. Look at how Jesus responds to Martha, verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Jesus' response is incredibly tender. Saying her name twice is a way of showing deep affection. In the scriptures, when you say someone's name twice or say something twice, it's a magnification of emotion. This is not disappointment. This is not rebuke. This is deep love. Martha has been the epitome of a perfect host, opening up her home, serving her guests, providing them with nourishment and rest. It's obvious Martha is a no-nonsense kind of lady. We know this from, from all the Gospels, what they say about Martha, right? She knows how to take charge. She's often telling other people what to do. And now J Jesus lovingly and gently corrects her, saying, you are anxious and you are troubled about so many things. She was worried and upset about the many good things she needed to do. But in doing so, she let those good things prevent her from experiencing the better thing, the best thing, intimacy with the Lord Jesus himself. Serving Jesus was a good thing. This isn't a story about stop serving Jesus. That's not the lesson here. It, serving is a good, and we hear us say this all the time, anytime a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that's when it becomes a bad thing. And the devil doesn't just use bad sins to do that. He'll use good things. Doing something, doing vocational work, meaningful work is a good thing. But when it becomes an ultimate thing and it becomes an idol, that's a bad thing. It's destroying your soul. When your marriage becomes an ultimate thing, when your kids become the ultimate thing, and you do everything for them and anything for them, and everything stops for your kids, and that's destroying our souls. Just like any good thing, it, it can become a distraction when it becomes an end in itself. She failed to see, listen, she failed to see that serving Jesus is more about Jesus than it is about serving. In fact, I'll take it a step further. Who is Martha really serving? Martha's upset with Jesus, right? Don't you care? She is upset. She is annoyed. She's heated up. Don't you care? And the reality is Jesus doesn't really care if the third course of the meal has come 10 minutes late. 
He doesn't care. His priority wasn't the food, but it was Martha's priority. Martha seemed like she was serving Jesus, but really she was doing it for herself. She's trying to prove herself to Jesus. She's trying to prove herself to other people that look what I can do to serve the Messiah. Look what I can do to put on a good hosting session. Look what I can do to prepare a meal for other people. Look, hospitality is a beautiful gift. In fact, it's commanded to all Christians in the New Testament. It is a sin not to be hospitable. But nothing can take the place of sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, and growing with him. Jesus says, that is the one necessary thing, verse 42. That's the good portion. Do you even believe that? I mean, I'm I'm asking you to honestly answer that in your heart. Do you even believe that's really, like, You could put up all the things that you do in life on a piece of paper, and and if you say, spending time with Jesus, engaging with Jesus, beholding, that's the one necessary thing. Everything else kind of takes a lower seat to that. Can you even say that? Jesus does. He's saying active, active dependence on him and his word is what matters most. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's great for Mary because she had Jesus in the flesh right there, right? We don't have that. You keep saying, see it at the feet of Jesus. What does that even mean? What does it look like? Here's what it looks like. Did you know that we as Christians today, on this side of the cross and empty tomb, that we have something even better than Jesus with us in the flesh? I know lots of people in church history and even today who are like, man, if Jesus were right here doing miracles, I'd believe in him. If Jesus were right here teaching, I'd be right there with Mary. Jesus literally said that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to live in every Christian to teach us and convict us and comfort us and guide us. And he said himself that having the Holy Spirit in you is better than having the physical Jesus next to you. Because we have the the real presence of Christ in us through union with Christ. We have him right here in a deeper way, more enduring way. So how do we sit at his feet and listen to his word? A couple verses that tell us. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing And how do you hear his words? The words of Christ. The words of Christ. The words of Christ. We grow in our faith in Christ by listening to the words of Christ. We grow in intimacy with Christ by growing deeper in our relationship with Christ by spending time in his word. Another verse, Jesus himself, John 10, when he talks about himself being the good shepherd, He says, when he, talking about himself, the good shepherd, has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his what? His voice. Do you know his voice? Do you follow him because you trust his voice? Do you long to hear his voice? As one author put it, our affection for Jesus and our affection for his voice in the Bible are inseparable. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, 
What does that signify? Two things. It signifies unhurried focus. Unhurried focus. She is unhurried. She's not distracted. She's not putting herself on a clock. Unhurried. She set aside this time and she is focused on him. She doesn't have her Bible and her phone and the newspaper and, and another device all there thinking, I'm spending focused time with Jesus while checking Twitter, while also answering emails. Unhurried focus as she's listening. But she also signifies submission. Notice the posture sitting at his feet. What does that communicate? It, it communicates, I'm under your authority. It communicates, whatever you say, I will listen, I will take seriously, and I will apply to my life. So, are you spending that kind of time with Jesus? Unhurried time, time submitting to him. Do you have the humility to recognize you're so dependent on Jesus that you need his word to nourish you and guide you every single day? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, reading and meditating on his word, not just the commands. Yes, it's good to say, what does the Bible tell me to do and to say and to think? That's good. But you also want to focus on his promises. You want to think about and meditate on the ways in which he calls you to rest in the, in the blessings he's already provided for you. Don't just look to the Bible and go, what do I do today, God? How do I do this today? No, rest unhurried and reminding yourself, Jesus has already forgiven me fully. I have his unwavering presence in my life. I have his all-surpassing peace. I have divine purpose today, no matter what it looks like. I know that he's working all things out for my good. I know that nothing can separate me from his love. You cannot, you cannot rest in those truths if you're in a hurry. And I'm talking to myself. You must slow down, take God's word, listen to it, rest in it, believe it, obey it. If you have started to wander from God's word, if your love for his word has grown cold, I want to lovingly, like Jesus said, I want to lovingly offer a warning that you're in danger. You're in danger of being deceived by the devil's lies. If your love for his word has grown cold, you're in danger of believing that the way of the world is way more satisfying than the way of Christ. You're in danger of that. It's very appealing. You're in danger of being deceived into thinking that this path of sin will fulfill that deep desire you have, that core desire. You're in danger of thinking this will give it to me. This will be the way to get that rather than the way of Jesus. You might be deceived into thinking there are so many other things that are important and I need to do all of them and it'll crowd out time with Jesus. If your love for the word grows cold, then when life gets hard, you'll start to wonder, is following Jesus even worth it? As a Christian, you and I know that the path of Jesus is one where Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up a cross, and follow me. 
It's a way of dying to self. And without feeding on his word, you'll start to question, is it really worth all this suffering that following Jesus entails? You'll wonder, is it worth it to obey him in this? And then you fill in the blank of whatever that thing this is. You will forget how clear Jesus made it when he said, for whoever would save his life will actually lose it. But whoever would lose his life for me in the gospel will actually save it. Christian, if you've started wandering from following the path of Jesus and loving his word, I can almost guarantee that it's because you've already neglected listening to Jesus speak in his word. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. This attitude of dependence on him and his word is what matters most. Did you know this is exactly how Jesus himself lived his own life? Jesus spent unhurried time with his father. You're going to see this as we study the gospel of Luke. Many, many times in the gospel of Luke, it'll say that Jesus went away to a quiet place to spend time with his father. Many times he goes away, he gets away, he gets to a quiet place. Not only that, when Jesus speaks, it's, it's proof. He's always quoting the Bible. He's always standing on the authority of the Bible. Satan, tem Satan tempts him in the wilderness. What does Jesus say? Hey, let me tell you what I think. Satan, no. He says, don't you know what is written? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting the Bible. At every turn, he's quoting the Bible. He, when he would teach people, he would tell them, you have heard it said in the Old Testament, and now I tell you this, how to apply it. When, when, when he's being arrested and Peter cuts off the soldier's ear, he says to Peter, don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels right now? But how would the scriptures be fulfilled? See, he knows the word of God. He knows scripture. And on the cross, the epitome of Jesus, uh, suffering, dying, bearing all the wrath of our sin, all of our hurry, all of our sinful distraction and anxiety, all of our choosing other things over him. He's dying on the cross. And what does he say? He's quoting scripture. My God, my God. An amplification of emotion. When Jesus was tested in life, what came out? God's word. He was utterly submitted to and obeyed the Bible, all because he spent unhurried time with the Bible. Jesus says to Mary, Mary has chosen the good portion. That word portion is important. It's significant. What is the good portion? Here's what it is. In the Bible, God is described as the portion of his people. Did you know that? Here's one example. There's many. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. The purpose of life, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To enjoy Him as your portion. The reason God saved you from sin and death and gifted you with eternal life is for you to enjoy Him, to sit with Him, to listen to him, 
to delight in him and to treasure him. Is the Lord your portion today? And is that evident in how you spend your time? Is that evident in how devoted you are to reading and treasuring his word? If you're struggling, maybe the first thing you can practically do is ask God to help you. Just ask him. God, I, I, I don't treasure your word. I am hurried. Help me. He delights to answer that prayer. Listen, not only is the Lord our portion, but again, I want to keep reiterating, don't you understand that, that you are the Lord's portion? Did you know that? It's not just about what we do for God, what we bring to God. It's what God has already said about us. Deuteronomy 32, God says to his people, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob has allotted heritage. You see, the only way you can make him your portion is when you trust that he's made you his portion. That's the point of the cross. That's the point of the empty tomb. If we confess our sin, admit we can't rescue ourselves from our incessant selfishness, and we turn to Jesus and his perfect record and trust in him, he gifts us with righteousness. He gifts us with his very own life. And we find that Jesus has been pursuing us all along. Jesus has been rescuing us all along. Jesus has adopted us into his family, and we are now his good portion, and that can never be taken away from us. Christian, you are his forever, and he is yours forever. And Mary had this beautiful glimpse of that glorious truth, and she was hooked. He hadn't even died for her yet, and she had this glimpse of it, that, that Jesus can be my treasure, and I can be his treasure. And she had a colorful past, a terrible past, and now she realizes Jesus accepts me. Jesus loves me. Jesus wants me. And she chooses him, the one necessary thing, her portion. Are you anxious and troubled about many things today? Maybe you're upset with God like Mary, like Martha, saying, don't you even care? If any of that describes you, Jesus today, right now, is offering you a better way, an unhurried way. He is offering you rest for your weary soul, hope and peace and wholeness. It's all available to you. Where? At the feet of Jesus and his word. Sit unhurried and submissive and watch how he wants to work in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in our neediness. We come to you in our inadequacy, some of us in our insecurities, some of us, and even may, maybe many of us come to you with a sense of self-sufficiency. We think we have what it takes. But maybe life is, has thrown enough curveballs. Maybe life has, has, has wounded us. Maybe life has beaten us up enough, Lord, where we've come this morning with this false sense of self-sufficiency, but this, this deeper sense of, I can't do this on my own. God, I pray that in that space, we would invite you in. 
that we would invite you to do your, your transforming work. And we know that it doesn't happen instantly. We know that you never hurry our sanctification. But we also know you will never give up on us. So help us right now, Lord. Help us as your people, believers in Christ, to cry out to you that this year we might spend unhurried time in your presence, with your word, feeding, treasuring Christ. May this be true for us as a church and us individually. And Lord, those who don't know you, may they find today that there is a well that never runs dry. There is a, a beauty that is beyond an earthly beauty, a sense of purpose beyond success in this life, a relationship that will never fail. And may they come to you, turning from sin and trusting in Jesus and experiencing the good life, true life, that one thing that will never be taken away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.